How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're discussing the communication of climate science. Scientists know a lot about the complex systems that regulate the Earth's ability to support life on our biosphere. It is what they don't know with a high degree of certainty that often makes news headlines. How accurate is mainstream news coverage of the nuances and probabilities of climate science? Has the politicization of global warming had a chilling effect on scientific inquiry? Over the next hour, we'll discuss the scientific dimensions of the national energy debate with our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. Our distinguished guest is Richard Alley, professor of geosciences at Penn State University and host of the PBS documentary series Earth, the Operator's Manual. Professor Alley is also the first recipient of a new annual Climate One Award for Outstanding Climate Science Communication being given today for the first time in memory of the late Stephen Schneider, a pioneering climatologist at Stanford University and a former member of the Climate One Advisory Council. Please welcome Richard Alley to Climate One. Professor Ellie, thank you for coming. Um, we're acknowledging you today as a communicator, so let's talk about this PBS documentary series. There's been other documentaries uh, by Al Gore, famously. Tom Brokaw's done a couple. What did you set out trying to, to do with the operator's manual that hadn't been done before? What are you trying to communicate? Yeah, well, we're hoping to communicate more not only of the imperatives for doing something, but of the amazing opportunities that are out there. I mean, let's... Be honest. We have had really, really smart people spending the last 100 years working really, really hard to get fossil fuels for us. Now, if you think about the last fossil fuels you, you bought, has the price plummeted as you've been doing this so that the poor people of the world could enjoy the energy that you get? And the answer, of course, is no. Um, drill, baby, drill, work for us, but it's not going to work forever. It cannot. And if we're going to get the good we get from energy for everybody in the world, we're going to have to have new ways to do it. And they're going to be things that are available to everybody. And what kind of assumptions did you make? A PBS is obviously aimed at a broad uh, swath of the American population, which polls say are increasingly skeptical of science and not sure climate change is happening. So how did you kind of pitch this to a, a skeptical public? Yeah, well, part of the thing is to find new ways to tell a story which is very well known. So the fundamental CO2 is a greenhouse gas. We have known this for over a century. The Air Force really worked out a lot of the details that were needed to do this right after World War II. They were not doing global warming. They were doing sensors on heat-seeking missiles. And if you look in the wavelength that CO2 is active, you can't see the hot exhaust of an enemy bomber at the edge of the stratosphere because CO2 blocks it. The air is, is thick. You can't see through it. And why not tell that story? Why not say, how do we know that 
CO2 is a greenhouse gas. Well, the Air Force figured it out 60 years ago. That was one of the things I learned in watching the documentary, which I didn't know. And, I, and that was, so uh, your hope then is that what to bring some people on board to who are are you after deniers or skeptics to try to say, hey, yeah, this is really happening, or if they don't accept the science, that there's at least opportunity in in addressing it. Absolutely, we're after everyone, and that includes deniers. It includes people that maybe have not been open to the science because they think it's being sold to them for political ends. And we start from the beginning. Let's do this apolitical. Let's stick with the most authoritative things we can come up with. Um, and let's have some fun. And how are you going to measure the impact? How do you know if you're going to be successful in getting people, engaging people that have been on the sidelines or skeptical before? Right. Well, this is um, the TV program and the, the associated website and museum tour and other activities are funded ultimately out of the National Science Foundation in formal science education. So we have careful assessment going on. There's science being done to see if this is actually working. The preliminary results look really good. So they're, they're polling people. They're talking to people saying, did this work for you? Is this, this showing it to you in a way that, that works? And the answer so far looks very good. Public media has been somewhat politicized lately, both on the television side and the radio side. Was there certain things in making this where they said, well, that's too political, too controversial. you got to stay in the safe zone? I did. Um, I'm trying very, very hard to start back at the science and not to tell anyone what to do. I, I like to say if they made me king for a day, I'd abdicate. Um, my <laughs> my impression is that as scientists, we are no better or worse than anybody else in knowing what is a, a best policy. But we are way better than some people at knowing what CO2 does interacting with the atmosphere or what warm temperatures do to an ice sheet. And so, so I would like very much to bring forward what we know, why it matters, what opportunities are at attached to that knowledge, because there's always opportunities. And then to stop and say, okay, now it's yours. A lot of the uh, information and data around climate science is very nuanced, and there's a lot of uncertainty, and scientists are famous for starting with what they don't know rather than what they do know. So how did you address that as, as a communicator, uh, addressing the, the uncertainty? Because there's a lot of things that we just don't know, or it gets down to probability, which Americans are maybe not so good at. Oh, yeah, uncertainty is a great one. The, the the late, great Steve Schneider gave me a lot of advice on how to deal with uncertainties, how to, how to put it out for people. And I've tried as much as I can to follow that. And so you've got to, this is what we know, and this is sort of as good as it can get, and this is as bad as it can get. And make that very clear to people. And the, one of the things that comes out over and over again in climate science, we expect something, and that something is sufficiently challenging that we are better off including it in our planning as opposed to ignoring it. And it may be that we things are a little better than that. We, we've overestimated the dangers. We've underestimated the good. It'll be a little better. And it may be a little worse. And it may be a lot worse. But we don't find a lot better. We don't know how just dumping CO2 in the air turns it into Eden, but we can see a slight chance of turning it into a disaster. Although uh, there's been some television advertisements that sort of suggest that dumping it into the air would create Eden, yeah. Um, You also have some daily driving examples that sort of brings that 
to home for people. Yeah, so, so if you're commuting, I get to ride my bicycle to work, but if you're stuck commuting here in San Francisco, um, what's the most likely outcome? You, you get stuck in traffic, it takes you 15 minutes longer to get there than you'd like, and you turn on the radio, and it's the captain and Tennille doing muskrat love. Okay. <laughs> now, <laughs> now, they're outlawed in San Francisco. Okay. <laughs> what's the best thing is there's no traffic, and it's the Beach Boys Festival. What's the worst? Well, you know, and maybe you, you, you have a lot of traffic and they're doing the, the emergency broadcast test and maybe you get run over by a drunk and you're dead. And so what we expect is the most likely is way on the good end. It could be a little better, a little worse. It could be a lot worse. And what do we do? We have seatbelts. I bought the car that makes sure it's got the side airbags and you got the good brakes and you, you put on the seat belt and if you got kids you put them in the in the car seat and you carry catastrophic insurance and you support mothers against drunk driving and how much there's crumpled zones in that car how much of our transportation budget is for something that I don't expect to happen which is getting run over by a drunk driver but we take out insurance against the disaster and we're not doing that we're not putting seat belts on the earth Right now, I haven't seen many. <laughs> so what is that? So this kind of gets beyond science a little bit. That gets into what behavioral psychology. You can present the science out there, but what people do with it, then that's your job is done. We need to show people all the pieces. We need to describe to them that bad tale. And doing that without saying it's going to happen, you're doomed, is a challenge. Because the odds are, you know, the, the, the late Steve Schneider said that the most the things that we're sure of is that this is not the end of humanity, and it's not a huge smile that's just wonderful for us. The difference between a car wreck and the global situation is there's precedent for car wrecks. People know someone who's had a car wreck. You can see the causality. But the climate situation, it's hard to visualize. It's abstract, and it's unprecedented. It hasn't happened before, so we can't say how bad it's going to be. Absolutely. And so this is one of the reasons that we try very hard to use history as much as we can. So what in climate history has happened that informs what's going on? How do we know from climate history that we really understand what's going on now and that that feeds into the future? So it's not just physics. It's not just biology and chemistry. We really can take the history of the earth and see that our understanding works and to know that as we crank into the future that where we're going has precedent and people have learned from it. And one of your areas of expertise is abrupt climate change. So what are the possibilities that the climate could get worse really fast? Yeah, this is, you know, we worked on ice cores in Greenland and the, the last ice age, it didn't come out smoothly and gradually. It staggered and in Greenland, there was a change of about 18 Fahrenheit in about 10 years. And different things in different places. The whole world didn't do that. But some places got wetter and some places got drier and some, and everybody's climate changed and it did it like that. So can that happen again in that, in the, the future? Is the, <laughs> the last IPCC said we have at least 90% confidence that there won't be an abrupt change in that direction in the next 100 years. But 90% is not 100. So, okay, <laughs> possibility. Let's talk about the, the media coverage of all this. How good of a job do you think that the mainstream media has done recently covering uh, climate science? Right. 
I, in general, my impression and the impression of many observers is that the, the media could do better. Um, and the media is not a monolith. The media is not a monolith. There are individuals. Really, really good people out there doing really fine jobs on it. But overall, the, the studies that have been done say that a, an intelligent person watching the TV and reading the newspaper will see way more uncertainty on big questions than actually exists in the, in the scientific community. So there tends to be we need another voice on the other side. The balance bias the is balance bias, say. and so so in general, I I I and my impression is that intelligent people who get their science from the media see a lot of argument because the media loves to sure. show that, and so so in terms of, and there is a lot of argument. It's just that what. The public is seeing as not the interesting arguments. CO2 as a greenhouse gas is not an interesting argument. What is a wise way forward and what are the relative merits of uh, wind versus sun versus capturing CO2, putting it in the ground versus conserving? Those are interesting discussions. Well, one area where those arguments came into the open was the climate gate emails stolen from the University of East, East Anglia. And so what that shows people arguing about different direction, et cetera. Is that what you're talking about? The sort of the heated debate within the, the, the camp about, uh, certainty and the way forward? Yeah. So, so the, those emails show an immense amount of discussion within the scientific community. We are not, anyone who can read those emails will immediately know, first of all, that we're not hoaxing anybody. We're not getting together and agreeing on reality. We are arguing like crazy over everything. But but those are refinements. They are ways forward in understanding. They are not the fundamentals. There's nothing in, in those emails that anyone is worried about whether CO2 is a greenhouse gas because that has been established for so long. We've known that burning things make CO2. CO2 is a greenhouse gas. You increase it, it turns up the thermostat, that impacts everything on the planet. There's winners, there's losers, but if we make a big, fast change, the losers way outnumber the winners. Where the scientific debate is, exactly how much? Can we make really good numbers? Can we turn to the policymaker and say, this much sea level in how long? And so we're having these huge discussions about that, but those are not at the core of the scientific understanding of climate change, which has really been confirmed so many different ways that there isn't much to argue about. So if you ask, is the climate warming? Okay, you go to the thermometer records and the thermometers say it's warming. And if you get the analysis from NOAA, National Oceanographic Atmospheric, it says warming. If you get NASA, it says warming. If you get the British, it says warming. If you get the new Berkeley, it says warming. But if you leveled out in the last 10 years? <laughs> if you throw away the cities and just use the country, it says warming. If you just take the thermometers in the ground, it says warming. If you take the thermometers in the ocean, it says warming. If you take the thermometers on the balloons, it says warming. If you take the thermometers on the satellite, it says warming. If you take Terry Root's brilliant work on who lives where and when they do things, 90% of the significant changes are in the direction of warming. If you take what's happening, the, the glaciers getting more snow on average are shrinking. It says warming. Now, go cut any one of those out, and what happened to the answer? Nothing. And at the point where you can cut out any one of them and nothing happens to the answer, then we can go and say, hey, it's warming. 
So that's well established. I guess we got that. Yeah. Yes. We got that. Yes. Yes. Um, though there is debate about some scientists are concerned. Do they want to stretch a little more? Some want to be a little more conservative. Some want to let, let it get out there a little more, a little more concerned, press the edges. Would you say about what uh, they say they're a little more certain? Well, I'm not so sure yet because we have to because of the urgency. Some people feel like they ought to stretch a little bit. Yeah. Is that fair? This is this is a really hard thing personally. So I vote. I have children, wonderful children. I have a wife. I have a family. Someday I may have have descendants, uh, more of them, another generation. Do I advocate or do I do science? And at what point uh, do I have the right to stand up and say, I believe, or do I stand up and say, this is what the science shows? And I've chosen for now to work very hard on this is what the science shows. And I'm trying very hard not to tell you anything that would be my personal opinion on this. But you cannot turn to the scientific community and say, thou shalt not have opinions. Thou shalt not care about thy, thy descendants. Um, we have to. What do you think about Jim Hansen, who's crossed the line from scientist mm-hmm. to advocate? Yeah, Jim is, is, you know, he has been a pioneering climate science. He has done the work, and he has towed the line carefully to make sure the science was science and that what he said was scientifically valid. And then he steps one step over and says, now I'm a citizen and this is what I believe. Arrest me. (laughs) So, um, and I respect that. I have chosen not to take that step yet. Um, and I might step in different directions than Jim, and I'm not going to tell you. But, um, but as a contributor to science, as someone who started from the science, Jim clearly did this. Our guest today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is Richard Alley, a Penn State professor, and I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, let's talk about population, because you t- open your d- d- documentary with population. That's something that a lot of environmentalists don't want to talk about, and that's a big part of the climate situation. So is that sort of already baked into the, the equation, that the population increased to 9 or 10 billion people? Right. So, so the, the optimistic view right, is if, if you give people two things, big things. One is their high confidence that their kids will grow up without dying in childhood. And two is interesting things to do with their lives. If we can give people those two things, the projections are the population stabilizes between 9 and 10 billion and we have a sustainable planet. And if we don't give them those two things, I'm not sure what we get. Some people would say uh, <laughs> 9 and 10 billion is stretching the limits well, beyond sustainability. But there are many really good people who have looked at it and said, we can do this. We can generate enough food. We can generate enough water. We can generate enough power to do this. The thing is, right now, we're probably halfway there. Right? There's 7 billion of us and 5 billion of us sort of have their kids are confident of growing up and, and they have something interesting to do. And we can argue whether it's 5 or 6, but it's something like that. The, so if we can just make one more doubling... We're there. The difficulty is a lot of what we're doing now is unsustainable. And in particular, it's the energy issue. Because we use, in the U.S., you eat 2,000 calories a day or 2,500 calories a day or something like that inside that runs you. Outside, you're using 100 times more than that. And it is lighting us, and it transported me out here, and... 
guaranteed there are very few who are going to hear this who had to spend all last summer hoeing corn so that they didn't starve to death this winter. Right? We have plows. We have, so there's, we get great advantage from this. 85% of our energy use is fossil fuel. And that must end. And it's just when. And so the question, can we get to that renewable energy structure that actually will power future generations? But the chances are that those people who you're talking about, that 7 billion, they're going to rise up and, and something interesting to do is going to involve burning a lot of fossil fuels like we did. It certainly will, unless we find better ways for them. You write about game changers. What are some potential game changers that could change quickly in terms of development right. of clean energy? Um, the first place to start is that we know we can get there without game changers. And this is the wonderful thing. The, the numbers are, if you can get a hundredth of a percent of the sun's energy turned for us, that's all of humanity's energy use. If you can put a wind farm on the windiest 20% of the plains and deserts of the world, don't, not in the city, not in the forest, not on the ice, not in the ocean, just the plains and deserts, get the windiest 20%, that is far more than human energy use. And the technologies, we've, we've got a, a little thing in, the, in my bucket, and we're working on it in the TV. A hundred years ago, there's this inventor, Frank Schumann. And Frank Schumann is running steam engines with concentrated solar thermal in Philadelphia. And then Frank Schumann takes his, his concentrated solar thermal, and he goes over to Egypt, and he's pumping water out of the Nile to water crops. And then World War I broke out. And all his engineers went off to blow things up. And, <laughs> but it worked 100 years ago. <laughs> so even without the game changers, one can get there. There's a lot of argument. There's certainly many of the economic analyses I've seen say that the biggest game changer would be simply making fossil fuels pay the whole price of what they actually cost society, including what they're doing to climate, including what they're doing to um, acid rain and mercury and what have you. And if you simply say we will quit subsidizing that, many of the economic studies say we get a long ways on the path to getting something more sustainable. So we have the technology, the resources are there, the energy's there, the wind, the sun. What we don't have is the money and the political will. Basically, yes, we have not gone very far. We're, we're gaining. You know, there are places and times people are doing it. We have these wonderful um, film clips in the in the show that were done in Texas of ranchers who have turbines on their ranch. And when the cotton doesn't grow, they don't lose the ranch because they're getting paid for wind power. And it works. <laughs> a lot of the poli underlying policy for that happened when George W. Bush was governor in Texas. Absolutely. And Houston is the biggest purchaser of renewable energy as cities. <laughs> so, but you don't get into policy. I mean, you're, you're focusing on science, right? It must be frustrating for you to say, hey, we have the science, we have the technology, policy is the problem. Yeah, but if I come out and tell you what policy to do, you're going to ask who's... Who elected him? Who made him whatever? And I believe in the science. I believe in firmly, deeply that if we get the right information to people and show them the whole picture, that they will eventually make wise decisions. And ultimately, this one, dealing with this makes us better off than pretending it doesn't exist.
But right now, the U.S. posture is basically pretend it doesn't exist, fight against it. But you've told me on the phone we talked that some politicians acknowledge that privately, and then they go out in front of TV cameras and they say something entirely different. We have certainly seen a a lot of interesting things. What we were chatting about on the phone is this difficulty a politician has of staying on message. Right. And so uh, I've had the wonderful good fortune to meet elected officials, high elected officials, at a time that the camera wasn't running and the microphone wasn't running. And I am wonderfully impressed with, A, how smart they are, how how personable, um, how dedicated to trying to get things right they are, uh, their ability to make jokes, their ability to connect things, their ability to ad-lib in real time, and their fear that if they say the wrong thing, it will be used against them in a political campaign as a soundbite, and it will beat them into the ground. And so when the when the camera is running when the sound is running they go to they go to sound bites because it's the only way to be safe because we have this system that one misstatement will be used against you over and over and over and over and over uh, but right. but they i haven't yet talked to any high political officer who would look me in the face in private and say you're a liar and I've heard a number of high political officers who have said that in public. Do you get nasty emails attacking you? Sometimes, yes. It's it's you open the email in the morning and you get the sort of you're a liar, um, you should burn. Um, <laughs> but it, but it's it's a fascinating thing that if I reply in a in a polite way, if firm, the next email is usually very different. And it's, they may not have a sudden conversion, but you go from being them to being someone. I go from being them to being Richard Alley, and very few people will do that, will walk up to you and say, you should burn in hell, you evil person. Okay? But they do that on the email. Okay? Um. But it's really interesting that you engage them, because some people delete them and don't, because they think that it's, I don't know, they're cowed by it, but you yeah. engage them and try to try to lure them in a little bit. At, at some point, yes. I've, I've done that more often than not. And like I say, my impression is that it works at some level, that there's a lot of people out there who are actually good people, but they're scared. Um, they've been fed something perhaps through some media outlet that they're listening to that, that gets them excited. Uh, they don't. They worry about the future. They worry we might get the wrong way, and somehow they get from that to I'm the problem, and, and they should call me an evil person. But like I, said, I think if I could sit down with them over a cup of coffee or a beer, that we'd get a lot of the way down the road to where we need to be. Interesting. Our guest today at Climate One is Richard Alley, the geosciences professor at Penn State University. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's talk about some of your students and how they're trained to be scientists and communicators. There's a really a high bar to get into you know, uh, academic science. You have to discover something no one else knew. Uh, and to communicate that uh, is, is really an added addition. Some people think that's not really scientists' job to be communicators. I've had people here say, I do research. That's what I get paid for. That's what my job review is. You want me to be a communicator? Give me more money. Change my job description. Yeah. And, or, and, and others who say it's a, it's a public service, a yeah. responsibility. If you get 
government money, you have a responsibility to be a communicator. And they're all right. I certainly do. You paid for me to do the science. It belongs to you ultimately. I owe it to you. If I don't, if I don't give it to you in some appropriate fashion, I'm not doing my job. But there is this activation energy, we call it, which is if you want to be a scientist, you really do have to discover what no one else knows. And in some fields, the technical requirements of doing that are really flabbergastingly high. And the people we, you know, we have people right now, really good professors and, and postdocs and students fanned out across Antarctica trying to find out whether West Antarctica is going to fall in the ocean and flood the coast. And they are doing... They're, they're doing seismic measurements and they, they're putting GPS out to see what's moving where and they're dropping tools down this borehole and they're taking ice cores out of the borehole and they're, they're, they're running radars and they're doing just technically things that are just flabbergastingly good. And so we sort of say to them, you will master this suite of skills, you will master this subject area, and then you will go out and learn something that nobody else in the world knows. You will write it up in a technical journal and get it past a whole bunch of really hard-nosed people who are going to make sure you got it right. We have some of those in the audience today. (laughs) And there's a whole bunch of them in town for the American Geophysical Union. And then you're going to talk to the second grade, and you're going to talk to the, the citizens, and you're going to talk to the senators, and you're going to talk to, and you're going to put it in their language, and it's a hard thing. You're asking a lot of some people, and we're trying very hard to find ways to, to help the students do this. The students that we see coming in, a whole lot of them now say, I want to learn what nobody else knows, but I really do want to help people use that to do good things. And that means I really do have to be a communicator. How do I do it? And we may send them by to talk to you. Um, <laughs> There's, there are training programs out there. There are people who are working on this, trying to either add additional resources uh, to organizations to have translators from scientific language to, to general language and to train uh, scientists not to bury their lead, as we say in journalism, and to speak in real English. Absolutely, and and a lot of really good work is being done, and then uh, science centers and and a, a whole lot of other things that, that you just have to smile about. Um, ultimately, I think we're gaining. I really do. Um, reality is heavily on our side. Um, and so I think eventually that the science really does get out to the people that matter. Uh, it's been a little slower and a little more zigzag path than I would have imagined 20 years ago. But I think eventually that, that people are going to realize that the science is good, that the scientists are not playing games, that we're actually trying very hard to find out what's useful, and that knowing this really does inform decision-making that helps us. We are better off for knowing this than we are to pretend it doesn't exist. And there's a lot of new technology. You've said that that, that your students are very media savvy these days, and, and that that helps them become communicators. If you can't, you sing tunes on YouTube strumming the Johnny Cash songs, right? Which is a great way to get across complex science and make it fun. I highly recommend them. If you haven't checked them out, Johnny uh, Cash and Billy Joel, hey. right? <laughs> yes, indeed. So and the, and the uh, Neil Sedaka and the Beatles, but yeah. <laughs> Whoa! But your young, your, your uh, postdocs or, or PhD candidates, right? They've grown up as very media savvy creatures. 
You know, does that help them communicate? I think I think it does. I think many of them are way better than I could ever hope to be, and they they certainly are savvy in ways that I'm not. So so I think there's there's real optimism here that we will see good communicators communicating good science to the people that need it. Who are some communi- science communicators out there in the public domain, bloggers or journalists that you respect? You think do a really good job? Well. Is it brown nosing if I say you? But <laughs> aside from that, I mean, certainly the, the late, great Steve Schneider, which is why we're here, was just, he was was a paragon of, of getting the word out. Um, I like to look at um, skeptical science. John Cook is, is doing interesting John things John Cook there. is here from Australia John, today. Okay. Welcome. <laughs> um, Gavin, Gavin Schmidt over at Real Climate is receiving an award down the street here at the American Geophysical Union. He and a team, uh, Eric Steig and Ray Pierre Ambert and Mike Mann and others have been pulling together um, useful commentary on science in, in important ways. Um, and so I, I read Andy Revkin. I often learn something from him. And so there really are people out there that are, are Doing good things. Andy Revkin, of course, at Dot Earth, the New York Times blog. Absolutely. You read Joe Rome. They go back and forth talking about people who are a little more conservative, a little more concerned. Joe Rome thinks a lot of people aren't scared and aggressive enough. Yes, and and I have Joe has asked me for comment on things, and and I suspect he would wish me to be a little more aggressive as well. But he has interesting comments on some things, and so yeah, it's it's worth learning. And I. I'll listen to talk radio when I'm driving to a meeting somewhere just to hear what's going on. I think it's useful to be informed across the range of views. So you'll listen to Sean Hannity, uh, Glenn Beck, et cetera, just to, just to hear what they're saying. Yes. Uh, and you are a registered Republican, as you it say, uh, in, in, your, um, in, in, in the opening to your, your doc- documentary. We are going to uh, put a audience microphone out here and uh, invite you. I'll ask one more question to Professor Alley. Uh, if you're on this side, we appreciate you not crossing this camera line and going out that door. And Renee and my colleague uh, Jane Ann are back there. We'll form the line. We have an on-deck seat here right next to Terry where um, uh, we invite you to come up and present a brief uh, question or comment. Um, I'm here to help you to keep it brief. One one-part question, please, and can we get a number of people? I know this is not a shy audience, so uh, people have some things to say and know some things themselves about um, the uh, for for Professor Alley. Uh, while we're getting getting that going, um, did the climate gate cause climate scientists to sort of recoil and be more cautious and conservative? Was there a chilling effect? After the dis, uh, the uh, disclosure of so many private emails, and then all of a sudden it's headline news. I think there is. I, I think that the difference we email about everything, and we, you know, sometimes the, the, if you're using email as your chat, you're using email as your let's let's. It, we have colleagues all over the world, and we can't sit down with coffee with them. We often email to them. And sometimes when you sit down for a cup of coffee, you, you, there's some rough edges in the discussion. And at the point where you say, whatever I type in this email may be all over the front pages of the newspaper tomorrow, if you don't think before hitting send, I worry a little bit about you. Especially now. So, Especially. But does that sort of constrain the, the discourse so that people aren't getting vetting 
differences in getting to the truth. I, I think it makes it harder. I think we're still doing our job. We, we care too much about doing the science and getting it right to actually quit doing the science and getting it right. But I think it probably complicates it a little bit on the way. Got to start using chat. It's harder to hack into. <laughs> um, let's have our audience question. Hi, uh, Craig Miller with KQED Climate Watch. Congratulations, by the way. And um, some might say that you're suffering from something that's been called uh, information deficit fallacy, you know, that the idea that if you just give people enough correct information, they'll come around doesn't work, that, that how they feel about climate is based on a whole matrix of deeply seated beliefs and other things. So how do you respond to that? Yeah, so I... I I am very well aware that, so I'm a professor, right? I have a professor button. You push the button and I profess and you will have troubles turning it off, okay? So, so we like to, we, you know, you, you just push our buttons and we will sit here and profess until everybody leaves, okay? But, but it's clear that that doesn't work. And so what we've tried to do in, in the book, in the, the PBS TV show, is to find new ways to present what we know that will allow people to engage with it in a different way. So at the point where climate change matters to you, I could say that. But why not have uh, an admiral of the U.S. Navy say it? Because climate change matters to them. And at the point where we ask, so, so what do you, what, this conservation stuff. I mean, that's your mother telling you to clean up your room, right? That's it's, And so you go talk to some Marines. And they're saying, well, we do conservation because a really long supply line is a really dangerous thing. And a huge number of the, the casualties in the Iraq and Afghanistan theaters were on fuel convoys. And saving fuel is saving lives. And, and then you at least can ask the question, is a really long fuel line for the United States necessarily a good thing? So I think it's, it's finding new ways to tell the story without necessarily pushing the professor button quite as often as we sometimes do. <laughs> our guest at Climate One today is Richard Alley, Penn State Professor of Geosciences. Let's have our next audience question. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Alley, I'm Tom Smirling from Climate Bites, and I'm particularly intrigued by this your discussion of how to tell the climate story in different ways. Most of us spend our time speaking to people who agree with us, but you've attempted to reach across these lines and speak to skeptics and others. What have you learned about what is effective in speaking to people who are inclined to be skeptical? Right. Respect is first. Um, They got to where there may be bad people out there, but I don't talk to them. I, I, the, the one, even the ones that call me names, when you can actually sit down with them and say, okay, they care. And usually they're arguing about things that are not what they really care about. What they really care about is the future. What they really care about is their grandkids. And so, so respect is where it starts. And then it is finding out where they are and figuring out how to get from there to, to some place that's useful. Because um, all of us, you know, it's not what you don't know. It's what you know that ain't so. And, so. and a lot of them have been told things that aren't so. And they're not scientists by and large. And so some source of information that they respected gave them a piece of information which is wrong. And how do you get 
out of that and replace it with one that's right is finding where they got it, finding what they know, and then finding a path that will show, like the Air Force finding out the radiative properties of CO2. It is easy to disbelieve me. It is harder to disbelieve the Air Force. Thank you. I wish we could clone you a few times. (laughs) And there's some people who would say, yes, let's have our next audience question. I'm Terry Root, and I'm from Stanford University, and I am the late Stephen Schneider's wife. And now I'm going to cry, too. I don't mean to do that, but I really do appreciate that what you've done, Greg. This is really wonderful, and congratulations, Richard. It's really great. But I wanted to ask you about faith-based people, and how do you inter- include them in what you're doing, and, and do you actually seek out help from them? Yes. So, so and, and Terry, you know, the audience, you know, Terry is a remarkable communicator, a remarkable scientist, uh, but I don't want to cry either. <laughs> she, she's done amazing things here. And so this, to be here and, and to have her here in the memory of Steve is just truly amazing, and I'm, I'm deeply moved. Um, and her science is really, really important. Um, but be that as it may, in terms of faith-based person, I am a member of a, a Methodist church. Um, I gave a talk oh, three weeks ago to a Baptist and Brethren church, um, Faith-based people often get this in a way that others may not. Um, We have lots of scientific studies. We have good scholarship that shows that if you have winter bulldozers and air conditioners, a little bit of global warming is not a terrible thing for you. Because if you have winter and you get rid of the blizzard that closed the airport, maybe you're happy. And if you have bulldozers, you can build a wall against the ocean that you hope it doesn't go over the top of. And if you have air conditioners, you can work in a hot summer. If you don't have winter bulldozers and air conditioners, making it hot doesn't... You're screwed. I'm sorry. So, um, So what's happening is that the warming now is primarily being caused by people with winter bulldozers and air conditioners. It's us, and we're not the ones that are suffering much. The people who lose... Are poor people in hot places, anybody trying to live a traditional lifestyle, and anyone who isn't born yet. And this is a golden rule issue. Are we doing others unto others as we would have them do unto us? And there's a whole lot of people of faith that say no. Um, and they say we really should care about this deeply because our actions will hurt others. And so the, the faith-based community often is, is very interested in, in trying to do something about this. And so um, I've, I've spoken on many occasions to, to people of faith. Um, and the other one is, I mean, let's suppose that you're of the, the Christian persuasion and you expect uh, the second coming. How many people would like to say, welcome, Lord, we knew you were coming, so we trashed the joint. <laughs> uh, one of the important things... Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> one of the important part things of Climate One events is also meeting people in the audience. And those of you who don't know Sally Bingham, who... She just went out the door, but she organizes a, a group around the country that, that gets congregations to engage on climate change and uh, is a fantastic leader in this area. So if you don't know Sally, you can say hello. She's right there. Yes, sir. Next, uh, next up, uh, audience question, please. Uh, yes, I want to say I'm here today because of the communication of Dr. Steven Schneider and your work here also, your attempts to communicate with the public. So 
my life's passion is, is now to be a climate change communicator. So what advice can you give to folks like myself that want to communicate this knowledge with the public? Yeah, um, you've got most of it already. <laughs> so you're excited, you're ready to go. That's the biggest thing, is to, is to want to do it. Um, get enough of the science that you know what you know and know what you don't know. And then I think it is, it is um, respect the audience, um, all of them, um, because they really are respectable people and they really are trying to get to the right place, even if it doesn't always show. And beyond that, it is your enthusiasm and your brilliance. So you'll find new ways, and you will find ways that I never would. We're discussing climate science communication and climate one. Let's have our next audience question. Uh, I'm Jeb. I have read a digital version of your two-mile time machine. Thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it on my iPad, of course. Bookmarked it all over the place. Uh, I'm an ex-Republican. Because of former Congressman Paul McCloskey, wonderful, moderate Republican congressman from this area who worked on both sides of the aisle to get a lot of legislation passed, uh, I re-registered as a Republican to support him. And a couple of years ago, I registered out of the Republican Party because it seems to me the leadership of that organization isn't worthy of my. So I want to offer that opportunity to you. Now, you, you I, I think it's making, a, it's making a small statement. It also allows you to talk to a lot of people. Would you like to register as an independent? That, that to me, is a question that lot, you, you, can, you can talk to anybody with that question. And then they, say, they may say no, they may blow you off. But anyway, the, the, what I'd like to hear some more from you on is where you got the obvious joy of talking about a lot of this stuff. Many scientists are sort of at their lab and they do the, do the paperwork. You have fun, and it shows in your books, and, and I've seen on, on the videotapes as well. Were you a kid who uh, kind of was outgoing and, had, and it was fun early on? Or how, well, tell me a bit, a bit about your path. Okay, I, I was socially stinted. I was, I was, you know, I, I've been learning. But it's fun. It is fun. It's just... So, so we, did, we did a piece of filming that will be in, I think, the third show or the second one, I'm pretty sure, that we were looking at how do you present conservation to people? How do you get past the you're trying to take my pickup truck or you're trying to, um, to be my mother and tell me to clean up my room? And so we went to a cave in New Zealand. And this cave is just gloriously beautiful. You just can't imagine. And it's, yeah. And so you, they, they put you in a wetsuit, and then they put you on this little train, and then they take, chase the sheep off the track. And then you, you take the train, and you, you go into the cave, and you walk around in the cave, and eventually you get in this inner tube, and you float out under the glowworms, and then you float down the rapids and back to the train. And it's, you just can't imagine how glorious this is. And we're sitting in there, and we've got a candle. Now, a candle puts 99 point something percent of the energy into heat. It's a tiny little bit of, of <coughs> light and a huge amount of what's waste. And then we had one of Edison's flashlights. And, you know, it's way better than the candle, but it's still sort of 98, 99 percent going to heat. And then we had an LED, which is five times better than the, the Edison, and it's headed towards 10. And then we had a glowworm. And even if, if the glowworm was as hot as an LED, it would burn itself up. And so, you know, the idea is sort of conservation is not about sitting around in the dark. The glowworm is glowing. He's not sitting around in the dark. Conservation is getting what you pay for. And 
Teddy, back to your Republicans, Teddy Roosevelt said on Arbor Day to the children of America something sort of along the lines of, you will not blame us for what we used. You will blame us for what we wasted. <laughs> Good segue to our, our next question. Well, I have to congratulate you first. I'm Sally Bingham, and I, I run the Interfaith Power and Light Program, which is a religious response to global warming. And Steve was a great personal friend and also someone who was willing to go to congregations and try to speak to us in a way that we could understand it. And so much of what I say now came from Steve and his ability to communicate with people of faith. And as you said, they do receive this message in a different way from other audiences. They receive it entirely differently from the way a secular audience would. And it's been an amazing adventure for me to, who, who speaks to religious groups all the time. And when we, you mentioned this yourself, it has to do with serving others. And if we know that the climate change is hurting the poor people the most, the hardest and soonest, it people will respond to that. Now, I'm going to leave the faith subject and ask you a question, though, that's political, because I struggle with the Republican Party people who have made declarations on their own in the past that climate change is real, serious, and we have to address it. But now if you ask them that question, they won't talk to you. They, they run away from the reporters. Tim Worth from the United Nations Foundation sent an email around yesterday. Some of these folks here may be on that list. But they, they, this article, which was excellent, came from the National Journal of Science, and it said that it's the Tea Party that has changed this whole political scene and that if you are asked, if you believe the science is real and you're asked by a reporter, just don't talk about it. Get get off the subject. And and they're finding that every time they interview these senators and congresspeople, they, it's exactly what they do. They walk away. But that the Tea Party has come along saying they don't like government regulation. So that's why they're so against doing anything about greenhouse gases because it involves government regulation. And that so much of the money comes from um, people who are interested in the fossil fuel industry. So I wondered if you if, if you think that that's accurate, if that's yeah. what's happening. I, I, I don't know how we can address something as big as the whole energy system and the whole Earth's climate that doesn't involve us collectively as well as individually. There are problems in the world. The ozone hole is, is getting fixed, and it is getting fixed with very little input from individuals. It was a few inventions of better refrigerants and a, and a government agreement that fixed it. And the government's fixed that, and they didn't really need us. And there are things... We don't actually need any government agent standing at the door of the restroom to see if we washed our hands on the way out. We can do that one on our own. This one is too big. We are going to have to do it, you know, collectively as well as individually. And we always have. They, the government helped make the canals. The government helped make the railroads. Eisenhower justified, Eisenhower was part of a convoy that tried to drive across the country back before World War One, and they barely made it. And when he became president, he said, we need, for national security, we need highways. And 
So the interstates, the national security is in the interstate law. You know, there's no question about this. When I first logged onto the internet as a student, it was the ARPANET, the Advanced Research Projects Administration of the Defense Department. It was on there. And so, so we always have ultimately said, if we want to get where we're going, we can do this as individuals and we really rely on it, but we've also used collective action. The GPS in your cell phone, you know, when we started using GPS to survey motion of the ice sheets in Antarctica, the Defense Department was dithering the GPS so we couldn't figure out exactly where we were. Uh, it's a defense program that has become hugely beneficial here. And so one suspects that when you hear the Admiral talking, when you hear the Marines talking, that eventually maybe this will start percolating in, that, that we're better off, we're more secure, we're wealthier if we include this in our discussions as opposed to pretending it isn't out there. Have you ever engaged a Tea Party audience or Tea Party members? A whole audience? No. Individuals, certainly. And have you brought them to, I mean, have you been able to say, how'd that go? Um... Progress. <laughs> the derivative's right. <laughs> We're discussing climate science communication with Penn State Professor Richard Alley, who received the Stephen Schneider Award at Climate One today for outstanding climate science communication. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's have our next audience question. Greg, thank you. And, and Richard, congratulations. Yeah. I wanted to share a little pearl of wisdom from Steve. Uh, I'd be, again, back to communications. He was a master is also extremely adaptable. And talking about fire insurance as a way to discuss risk management, in a private conversation, he dropped this little pearl of wisdom that will help normal people, not just scientifically aware people, understand, and that is bicycle helmets. What's the chance your child will suffer a brain injury when he or she goes out on a bicycle? Maybe 1% or 2%. But we don't make her wear a bicycle helmet 1% or 2% of the time she's on that bike. We make her wear it every single time for the whole ride. Thank you for this opportunity. Oh, and thank thank you. you. And I have to admit, um, the, so Steve would often ask the audience how many have actually had a fire and then how many have fire insurance, and those numbers are grossly different. And I have to admit we uh, are doing, as part of this NSF-sponsored project, to, to take Earth the Operator's Manual and share it with people. We've been going to museum venues, and we're doing the same thing. We swiped at it. We just smile. So... <laughs> Let's have our next audience question for uh, Richard Alley. Hi, my name is Terry Vogt, and full disclosure, I work for a company that is uh, uh, involved in climate change. Uh, it's Terra Global Investment Management. We make uh, investments in carbon credits and tropical forests. The one group of Republicans that I have identified who have a greater portion of willingness to agree that climate change is real seem to be working in the insurance industry. And, <laughs> and for example, if you go to uh, annual meetings of the state insurance commissioners of the United States, you'll find that there's always a half-day session on climate change and how is it that the states or the reinsurance people, all of the parts of the insurance industry, are paying attention to that. 
This is one of the levers, I think, that might be of interest to science to continue the dialogue. I'm wondering if you have something to share about, aside from the burning down your house questions, about insurance and climate change. Right. So, so I don't have much to add. I know that, that indeed there are many climate scientists that have been talking to the in, insurance, uh, reinsurance especially, has been interested in this. And it's, it's true. They see where humanity meets nature. And they have to project well ahead because, you know, they, they are making ultimately wise decisions that, that will influence things for decades. And when they look out, we have fairly high confidence that some more heat waves and fewer cold ones and expansion of the tropical dry zones and sea level rise and, you know, you, what kind of insurance decision do you make about New Orleans? And do you decide that we will act in a highly wise way and make sure that the levees are high enough? And, you know, so, so yeah, like I say, reality is on our side. <laughs> There's been a number of studies, too, about the cost of that insurance is, is fairly manageable as a percent of the, of the global economy, uh, the Sturm Report and, and others. Uh, we're discussing climate science with Richard Alley, who's the host of the PBS documentary, Earth, the Operator's Manual. Uh, we are in a situation where there's a lot of budget cuts. How are the budget cuts that are happening nationally going to affect climate science, the National Science Foundation, the kind of research that you and your colleagues do? Yeah. Um, if you take money out of the research uh, activity and it's going to slow down, there's no question about that. Worries about maintaining continuity of, of observation of the planet. Where are we going to have the weather satellites? Are we going to have uh, satellites that are measuring new climate things? Are we going to keep that, that continuity going so we really can monitor what's happening? Um, and then real worries about spinning to the, the big questions that are coming. So, so Steve Schneider started as essentially a, a physical climate scientist and then went into what are the impacts, what are the, how does this matter to people, how do, how do we deal with this, how do we make useful numbers for them. Once, if we as, if the physical scientists among us got everything perfectly right, that still doesn't tell the insurers what they're going to do. It doesn't really, you know, there's engineering and there's human behavior and there's economics and there's a great range of interesting things to be done. And it will be hard to spin up a lot of research in those if there's a, a big cutback coming. And those are the kinds of things eventually translating scientific research into useful policies that actually make the economy run better for trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars, uh, there's a lot of doing there yet. And we're not terribly far done. <laughs> and if that money dries up in the U.S., is it possible that research needs to happen in Europe, emerging economies, China, India, that have, have more money, a lot of growing... Uh we're producing more PhDs in the sciences these days. We're seeing a lot of a lot of research in Europe. We're seeing a lot of research growing in China and other places. Um, Europe is maybe just a tiny bit worried about their own budgets. <laughs> just a little bit, but China has all the money these days. China is is pushing ahead on an amazing range of fronts and and educating lots of students, lots of engineers. Very excited by the prospects. Um, it's we have some film in the the TV show of of the efforts being put into alternate energies over there, and um, it's it's blow you away, amazing. 
We're getting close to the end. I want to ask you, um, you, as I mentioned earlier, you focus your research partly on abrupt climate change, which are surprises. What are the surprises, potential surprises out there that really worry you? Yeah, the one I'm most worried about now is is fairly rapid sea level rise. So we have in the in the third as in 2001, the the UN, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, said we don't think the big ice sheets are going to do much for a hundred years. And in 2007, we said, oops, the big ice sheets are shrinking already. And not real fast, but they're sort of a hundred years ahead of the schedule we had hoped we had right. And so that's a little worrisome. And, and our research has been pointing to sort of threshold behavior, tipping point behavior, not only for Greenland, which, which Steve Schneider talked about, but also for pieces of Antarctica. That, um, as if you, if you start turning a dial on the, the thermostat in the ocean that, that interacts with the edge of the Antarctic ice sheet, the, the ice is going to go, not much, not much, not much, not much, whoops! And, <laughs> that's a really hard thing to forecast. And so we're not, and we're, I, this is, this is where I almost get embarrassed, because scientifically this is a playground. You just have all the things you need to learn to get when the whoops happens. Um, and we're just having a ball. But it's really frustrating to come out of the playground and say, oh, we don't have the answer yet, uh, check back next year. And then we go back and play and we're having a ball. But I, we can't, and I don't know how fast we're going to get the answer because that's a very different answer, very hard one to get. But the chance that sea level rise will be a lot faster than we expected is, is worrisome to me. I also worry a lot about stability of ecosystems. This is something I know nothing about. But um, we, we studied a, an abrupt climate change 8,200 years ago. And in pieces of Europe, the, the climate was kicked for a few decades really hard. And the ecosystem that went away and the one that came back were different. And so you say, okay, so what happens if we start pushing all kinds of things in all kinds of different directions? Are we going to topple some ecosystems that we really like and what would come back and how do we work with those? So I, I think there's real questions about, about what we do to biological systems. And I'm not the expert, but if I were starting over again, I might go that direction. <laughs> Do you know how fast sea level has risen in the past? Is there a historic precedent for fast sea level rise? Yeah, so the fastest sea level rises that we see in the climate record are a good bit faster than what we're projecting now, uh, several times faster. Um, and and we still have this nagging worry that maybe the climate record sort of blurred those out a little bit. We don't. If there was a really fast one, it might sort of appear sort of fast. So nature is capable of doing things that are a good bit faster than what we're expecting. How fast is fast? Years, days? I mean, so it would it would be so. Right now, we're expecting a foot, a foot and a half over the next century, plus whatever the big ice sheets do. Um, you know, a lot of people are saying three feet over the next century, but could it be six? Could it be nine? Um, I don't think we can rule those out. Let's end on what gives you source of optimism that you find most exciting. You've done this documentary on PBS, Earth, the Operator's Manual. You've talked to lots of people. What yeah. is your beacon of hope? I'm a teacher. <laughs> 
it's true. It's true. We have we have students that some days I go home and I grumble about them a little bit because they may oh, be no, trying yeah. to find the the shortcut around learning the stuff. But we have students that want to learn the stuff and they really, really, really want to make a difference. And as long as we got a university full of students that really want to make a difference, we can do this. So it's your students. Our thanks to Richard Alley, host of the PBS documentary Earth, the Operator's Manual, for his comments here today, where he received the, the Stephen Schneider Award for Climate Science Communication. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming.